0: And so it's no wonder that the whole biblical scripture is one giant story. It is the relationship between God and us as a way to understand, to find meaning. And so why this morning to be this like storying exercise is to put just to help us put in the mindset of Mark, who is, I think, maybe I was even thinking this morning, I may actually be so bold to say maybe the best storyteller in the Bible because of how he tells his stories. Now, if you to look at the synoptics, you to look at the, the, the different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have different points. They all have different kind of Im- implications. And so there's a tendency for us, if we've been in the church for a long time, we've read our Bibles for a long, a long time, we want to take those facts, those data points, And make like a big a big full sketch of jesus like his full self so we're going to take all of his parts that we find in all the different gospels and that's how we really understand jesus and in some senses that's true we're going to hear different things in different gospels sometimes they're almost they actually contradict each other because they're eyewitness accounts right we've maybe heard that before that everyone who sees the same thing happening like if we saw an accident outside we'd all describe it differently because we're all coming at it from a different lens. We're all coming out of a different perspective. So to get the fullest perspective, we're going to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, John and whoosh, squish them together. But if we do that, we, and we don't release our, our knowledge or kind of our suppositions, presuppositions, when we come at a singular gospel, say, like Mark, we actually may lose the point of what Mark is trying to say. We have to be comfortable to let it to let it go a little bit and to trust Mark and to trust the Spirit through Mark's words. Because Mark is building to a climactic point. And we've been, I, I mean, I've been going through the Gospel of Mark since January, I think, February. And something happened to me, and I realized it on the drive in this morning. I've been using this, uh, and I actually, I think it happened to NT Wright too. I love NT Wright. This is one of the this is an NT Wright uh, commentaries uh, mark for everyone who's ever read NT Wright before. Nope, nope, just a couple of? Nobody? Oh, he's good. This is easy reading NT Wright. His his uh, his commentary on Paul is 800 words. It's not easy reading. This is easy reading. He's a brilliant scholar in England. He's a, like was a bishop of Canterbury, I believe. He's a brilliant, brilliant mind. Some say he's the C.S. Lewis of our day. And he is an excellent, excellent understanding of narrative, of Jewish narrative. So I've been, he's been really informative and really helping me as I go through this book. But there's something about uh, commentaries that I I don't read a lot of opinion pieces. And this book in particular, he always started every chapter that he was kind of breaking down with like an anecdote, a story, uh, an experience that he had. And I'll be honest, I skipped a lot of them. I don't care. I want the the meat, Uh, Tom. Like, Give me the the good stuff. But then I realized the further I got along in his book, the less anecdotal stories he was sharing. His chapters weren't starting with personal experience. He was going right into the commentary about Jesus. I thought that was really interesting. It's less and less personal for him and became more and more personally about Jesus. And then I realized as I look back to my own experience with Mark is I've gotten the same thing has happened to me, that Mark has actually sucked me right in to his gospel, that I prepared Mark differently in February than I do now as I'm almost at the end of it, like radically differently. I was as much more, I don't know what to say. I just prepared differently in February, March, April. As we're going through the big narrative of Mark, it became more and more and more personally about Jesus. Mark got me. I didn't even see it coming. He just pulled me right in. And so today, I didn't even really think about it until it, it just struck me last night as I was just sitting in silence pondering this story that this is the, the climactic end of Mark, the climactic finale of Mark. And I, kn- and I knew it was, but in a very different way. And so there's no way that I could do any justice to this set of passages in Mark. It's way, way, way too rushed. It's, it's like it's really unfortunate you could i you really could spend a lifetime in these couple of chapters and as you come to the end of mark it's really like if you were going into um if you're going into like a a bank vault or you're playing like a a a, some sort of a a, a quiz show game and you're allowed to grab as much money as you could Do do you remember like shopping show way back where you could go and you. Pull everything off. The sh- you filled up carts, and the person who had the most amount of—you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. i this, i was a little kid when I watched that, so I've had very, very weird memories of it. Uh, but that kind of thing—if you had like five, five, ten minutes to grab as much as you could—the store is full. There's no way you could possibly ever take everything out of the store. You're just grabbing as much as you can. That's how I personally feel about the the la- like chapters 14 and 16 of Mark. You could slow walk every single sentence. And if you let the images hit you and the feelings hit you and the tension hit you, you could just sit there for years because there's just so much and how Mark lays it out. It's just so, so, so brilliant. So I I have to apologize because it's not going to be enough. But after the Garden of Gethsemane, and after Jesus' betrayal, and after his trial, if you're familiar with the crucifixion story at all, we, we, you know what happens next. He, he goes before Pilate, and he has this exchange with Pilate. And I'm only going to read just a tiny bit. So after they have, like, the, Jesus and Pilate are having this exchange together, the high priest by then had worked up the crowd, the crowd, to ask for the release of Barabbas. Pilate came back to Jesus, or to the crowd. He says, what do I do with this man you call king of the Jews? They yelled, nail him to a cross. Pilate objected. But for what crime? But they yelled all the louder, nail him to a cross. Pilate gave the crowd what it wanted, set Barabbas free, and turned Jesus over for whipping and crucifixion. The soldiers took Jesus to a place called the Praetorium. This is kind of outside of Pilate's kind of governance, headquarters, and called together the, uh, the entire brigade. They dressed him up in purple and put a crown plated from thornbush on his head. Then they began their mockery Bravo, king of the Jews. They banged on his head with the club, spit on him, and knelt down in mock worship. After they had their fun, they took off the purple cape and put his own clothes on his back. Then they marched out to nail him to the cross. There's a man walking by, coming from work, Simon from Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They made him carry Jesus' cross. The soldiers brought Jesus to Golgotha, meaning Skull Hill. They offered him a mild painkiller mixed with wine and myrrh, but he wouldn't take it. And they nailed him to the cross. They'd divide up his clothes and threw dice to see who would get them. They nailed him up at nine o'clock in the morning. The charge against him, the King of the Jews, was printed on a poster. Along with him, they crucified two criminals one to his right, the other to his left. If you do reverse, you go backwards from the beginning of Mark with kind of the arrival of John the Baptist and all those things where Jesus is, all these stories we've gone through, he heals people, he casts out demons, he's got, he's got power over the dark world. He's wandering around, he's bringing up a following. You can see this, this story developing. As Jesus goes along, people are starting to recognize that he's, he's a, obviously, he's a, he's a well-spoken guy. He's a prophet. But right away, the high, the, the, the leaders of the, of the religious leaders, they, they want him gone because he's, he's a problem. And that tension grows and builds and builds and builds. You have an introduction. You have kind of that rising action. And all those great stories of walking across the water, feeding the 5,000, feeding the 4,000, Jesus is pushing the boundaries, the feeding of the 4,000. He invites Gentiles in to be in this community. He's talking in ways that the disciples don't quite understand. And the more and more that action grows, the more and more the tension grows. And you can follow him along as he has his Mount of Transfiguration. And he's looking down south after just being standing beside Elijah and Moses. And God has said, you know, this is my son. I'm proud of him. I love him. He's looking to Jerusalem because now the story of Mark pivots. He's going down to Jerusalem to die. He knows it. The disciples don't. Jesus keeps healing, but now he's sprinkling in all kinds of times that he's going to die. His disciples don't get it. The tension builds and builds and builds until he actually comes into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, hailed as king. Everybody thinks he's going to take the throne of Jerusalem two of his disciples say, I want to be on your your right and your left. When you you enter into that palace, I I want to be beside you. Peter says, I'll never walk away from you. I'll die for you, Jesus. Then we come to that kind of where the tension reaches a boiling point and he's betrayed by his own fellow disciple. And he's led away and his disciples scatter. And Mark probably tells us that he's actually there. He's one of those people who runs away ashamed, afraid, terrified. And Jesus has gone to trial where he stands accused of things that he didn't do. And we, we kind of discussed last week, he's becoming the living scapegoat for the entire culture. And Mark is drawing us in to say, we're there too, fingers pointing. But it's only something only Jesus can do. He's the only one who can stand in that place. And he does so willingly. Then he's taken to Pilate, and is, and he's not given a fair trial. Then the crowd that welcomed him in turns on him. He is utterly alone. His disciples are gone. The favor of the crowd has melted away, and they ask. For Barabbas. Now this is what struck me last night. That I never realized in this small passage I've always associated we, we have this, this um, well I've had this concept that Jesus has stood in my place for my sin. In the abstract like all the bad things that I've done and will do and the, the darkness of my heart. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die for my sin. But in this story, there are two criminals that are beside him. Crucifixion. Those are, we've understood those as thieves. Some translations say they're actually like brigands or outlaws. They're insurrectionists. They are revolutionaries. They're not petty thieves. They're Jewish revolutionaries. They're murderers, like Barabbas. He's an insurrectionist. He's a radical Jew who wants Rome expelled and would do anything to have it happen, including kill. Barabbas is caught, his two friends are caught. That tiny micro-rebellion is squashed, and those three were slated to die by crucifixion. Rome's definitive display of power. Uh, one scholar says that at some point, Rome, the Romans had crucified so many people in Jerusalem and the area that they actually ran out of trees. This was the way that they killed, that definitively their, like, go-to torture method. So much so that Romans, Roman citizens wouldn't even use the word crucifixion or, or cross because it was gross. It was beneath them. It was violent. It was awful. Something they didn't want to talk about. But that's the way Rome treated criminals. Anyone who dare question Rome's authority, you're crucified. And so Jesus is actually taking the place of Barabbas an actual violent revolutionary. But Jesus hadn't hurt anybody. Then he's, as he's swapped out, he's taken to the praetorium where the the whole kind of guard of the Romans get to dress him up like a Jewish king. And one commentator just slightly mentioned, and it just struck me. That Jesus, this is probably what Rome wanted to do over and over and over again to the Jews. They hated the Jews. They hated being there. The Jews were beneath them. This is like a dusty outpost. Pilate doesn't want to be there. And these guards are beating up the king of the Jews, Jesus, in place of the actual king. They're taking out their aggression on him. They're mocking him. They're mocking Judaism. They're doing to Jesus what they wish they could do to the king in the palace. Jesus is actually taking the place of the king. And as he's marched out and he can barely carry that cross as someone's like told you're going to carry this for him and he's nailed to the cross and he's got the thing on the king of the Jews. Mark is like slowly bringing us to his climactic end. Just, no, just, just notice, the high priest walking with the religious scholars were right there mixing it up with the rest of them. People were calling out to Jesus, bystanders. The same crowd of people that welcomed him in are now yelling at him, hey, you're so great, come down from that cross. You're so, you're so amazing, Why don't you just lift yourself off that cross? And there, the high priest, he's right along with them, the religious scholars right there mixing it up, having a great time poking fun at Jesus. He said, "They say he saved others, but he can't save himself. Messiah, is he? King of Israel? Then let him climb down from that cross. We'll all become believers then. Even the men crucified alongside him joined in the mockery. At noon, the sky became extremely dark. The darkness lasted three hours. At three o'clock, Jesus groaned. Now, there's other translations that I think say this better, that Jesus actually cried out. This is the first thing that Jesus had said since his last words with Pilate, hours and hours and hours before. He cries out from the depths, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabalakani, I don't remember how to say that. Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus is quoting from the Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 26. He's crying out to his own Father, God, why have you left me? Why did you leave me? Now think about this. I don't know that there's an answer to this. That Jesus as part of the Trinity has been abandoned by Father God. And you can infer all kinds of things about this theological statement. That Jesus is crying out to God that you've left me. Because at at this moment, Jesus knows what's about to happen. Is that the entire sin of the world is about to fall on him. And whatever's happening between him and God, I don't understand. But this is when he's actually becoming the sacrifice for all of us. Here is where he is taking his the place for me. He takes the place for Barabbas. He takes the place for the king. He takes the place for all of us, for me. And last night, as I was sitting, then it hit me. Mark, oh, you, you got me. You did it. What a triumph. Because for the first time in my life, I'm reading through this story. And I'm letting this story sit with me. And I I love this story so, so, so much. It is a beautiful, brilliant narrative. It's, It's shaped my life in so many ways, and I could tell it over and over and over again. But Mark did it. He, he, a, a, a triumph like none other, because as I'm sitting there, I finally realize the same Jesus in the text is the same Jesus that I pray to, that I talk to, that I visualize, that speaks to me. And I'll be honest, I've been a follower of Jesus for a long time. And have never made that connection. Narrative, belief, and personhood coming together. Oh my, you're the same guy. You went through that. You literally went through this for me. And this is point of Mark I believe because there's a man there a lot smarter than me and he he's a, a character kind of sneaking in the background that he gets very little mention but he must have been there for a while he must he must have been there when Pilate sentenced Jesus to death he must have been watching because he's he's got his eye on the scene and he was there probably when Jesus is whipped He's maybe not, act, he's not doing the whipping, he's not the violent one, but he's a bystander. He's a, he's a part of it. He's definitely there when, he's, when he sees Jesus kind of carrying his cross through the, through the streets. He may have been the one to ask Simon to help carry the cross for Jesus. We don't know. He was certainly there when he saw Jesus' hands and feet get nailed to the lumber and when the, the sign was posted on top. He was there when they offered him wine and myrrh. He was there when he saw Jesus' lifeblood drip from him. He heard the mocking cries. He saw the hatred, the vitriol that was being thrown at Jesus. And he was there to hear Jesus cry out to Father God, you've abandoned me. And then he saw Jesus take his last breath and die. And at this moment, this man, the centurion, is the first person in Mark's gospel to see Jesus for who he actually is. And he says, surely, this man was God's son. The Roman centurion a grizzled veteran, commander of a hundred men who was a killer by trade. He's probably seen who knows how many people die, how many people he's killed himself. A loyalist to Rome and Caesar. Battle-hardened, jaded, hard, tough life. But there's something about the way Jesus died not just at the cross, he was was probably in charge of the crucifixion, so you probably saw from the beginning what had happened. It didn't, didn't make sense to him. And finally, when he sees Jesus physically die, he's the first one in the whole gospel that really gets it. It's not Peter, it's not John, it's not the high priest. So, the other disciples, it's this Roman centurion that says, that guy is God's son. That is remarkable. And I think what Mark does is he brings us to this point. That Jen said it this morning. Who do we see? Jesus. When we look at Jesus, who do we see? And Mark says at this point that when Jesus dies, the temple veil rips, rips in half. The symbolic presence, the presence of God, however you want to see the temple, it's, it's over. The mediation between God and people and priests and sacrifice, it's done. It's now Jesus. Who brings us into to humanity, into union with God the Father? And it's not the Jews that, that know it, it's the Roman murderer who sees it first. And Mark says this is the invitation to the whole world to see Jesus the same way. And so these converging things in my own life is like, oh my goodness, it's you. Jesus. That was you. Amazing. So I don't know what to tell you. You should read Mark. And you should start at the beginning and you should you should just read it, forget chapter and verse. Just throw that stuff out there. Throw the conceptions you you think you have of Jesus, just throw them aside don't worry about theology that's a terrible thing for a pastor an ordained pastor to say but truly like trust the spirit to speak through his words like what what mark is doing is is world shaping world world shaping and there's just so much that you could you could go with. I can't do it you, you do it yourself And as you come to that climactic point that I believe is the climax of Mark's whole gospel, is all this tension is built to this one guy saying, oh, that's God's son who has suffered and died for all of us. He's taken the place for all of us, even me. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for... uh, the good stories that we've even heard this morning of how you're working in and through our community, how you're even through small gift cards and, and gestures and prompts that you're, you're shaping lives. We thank you that you've been doing this for literally thousands of years. We thank you that uh, most of all, that you took the place of all of us on the cross. And it's something that obviously only you could do. But through your death, you actually released something uh, profound into the world. That you broke through the barrier that that separated us uh, between uh, us and your father. We thank you that you were abandoned so that we wouldn't have to be. And we know that, uh, certainly I know that I don't deserve that. I can't earn that. I can't do anything except accept it as, as a gift. And we thank you that uh, we can be a part of this ongoing story of your work in the world, of your life and your breath in the world, that this story isn't done being written, but it's actually being written through, through us today. And so may we be uh, a recipients of your promptings and be obedient pencils in your hand as you tell a beautiful story of your love in the world through us. I thank you for this. I pray for a a good day and a good morning and the rest of the day in your name. Amen.